I'm super excited for the topic today. We're going to talk about objection handling, specifically in the sales context. And just to introduce our guest real quick, uh, this is not the first time we've done a webinar together, but Nick Sigelski, he's an account executive at Time by Ping and also co-host of one of my favorite sales podcasts, host of the uh, 30 Minutes to President's Club. Nick, good to have you, my man. And we have Colby uh, Martino, Senior Manager of Enterprise and Strategic Sales at Zoom Info. And correct me if I'm wrong, Colby, that includes some of the Zoom Info products and also the Chorus uh, product line yeah. as well. Good question. So we've grown so quickly that, um, you know, I'm essentially, uh, I head up what we call our emerging uh, products. So it's basically everything that's non-core, you know, that prospecting sales OS platform. But I've been with the company for for over five years, pre all of our acquisitions and mergers. So um, yeah. very familiar with sort of the whole thing. Very cool. Okay. We're going to jump straight to it, you guys. So a couple couple things before we get started, because I know I'm going to get asked this hundreds of times. Nick, thanks for hopping in the chat there. Yes, the webinar is going to be recorded. You'll get sent to replay, <laughs> all of that kind of good stuff. Uh, number two is if you've been on a webinar um, with myself or with Nick before or any of the other stuff that we've done, uh, you know I like to be super interactive. So if questions pop up, if you could, since we have, we have like over 500 people on right now, um, if you could use the Q&A button at the bottom of Zoom here, drop your questions in there. We'll try to get to as many as we can. Um, I want to start with, let's talk about the the mindset and the approach behind objections, okay? So I'll start with you, Colby. Um, how do you think about objections? Because I think a lot of the the people that might come to a webinar like this are looking for the best ways to like handle objections and you know all that kind of stuff. With the reps that you work with and having done this yourself a ton, how do you, what's your mindset around objections? How do you think about approaching them? Yeah, good, good question. Um, I also hate when people say good question. I don't know why I just defaulted to that. Like you're going to say, oh, that's a dumb question. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think there's sort of two different, different things here. Um, there's, there's your objections that you're going to come across throughout your sales process, right? And then there's the objection that comes across when you're trying to close the deal. And I think fundamentally, the objection that comes across when you're trying to close the deal, it's really more of a reflection of, of, of a failure to uncover the objection before that point. So I like to preach a lot about you know um, the concept of radical candor and, and soliciting and fishing for those objections uh, early and often, right? So we can, uh, we can attack them at that point, we can address them and we'll, I'm sure talk about ways that we do that. Um, but, uh, in terms of throughout the sales process, I want to find them. I want to bring them up. Um, and then there's a sort of different approach if, if it comes up at the end, you know, you can't always be perfect. Sometimes there's a last minute thing. Um, and we can talk yeah. about that too. So when we did some prep for this, I feel like this is pretty counterintuitive thinking because, I don't know. Let me know. Give me a yes in the chat if you ever think like this. Is Do you ever come across a time, for those of you watching this, where you're maybe apprehensive to bring something up because you know that maybe your competitor does it and you don't? Uh, maybe you know that they're likely to give you a budget objection, so you end up not talking about it at all. 
and you avoid talking about the topic, hoping that it just won't come up and that they won't think about it, let me know in the chat, yes or no, do you ever catch yourself, if you're being honest, avoiding bringing up certain things where you don't feel confident about what the answer is and you, it, it might hurt you actually by digging into it? Okay, so, so, so we're not alone. So Nick, you talk about something. This might have been a Charles Mulbauer thing too. You'll have to correct me, but you brought something up around like looking for trouble. And it's the same kind of premise here. So when you think about objections and fishing for them and sussing them out early, can you tell us a little bit more about your thinking behind that and why you want to do that as a seller? Yeah, my intent's not to kill the deal or be like, you shouldn't buy this thing because of X. But, and my job as a salesperson is to um, help the customer overcome their concerns or their worries about buying my thing or moving forward with the thing. Um, and so I want them to voice their concerns and hesitations because an objection that is unvoiced, it's impossible to handle. It still makes a noise in their head, like the tree in the forest analogy. So yeah, what I want to do is if I know that that concern exists or I know it's going to come up, I want to proactively bring that thing up. There's two reasons. One, if I proactively bring it up, I can sort of set the board as to like, framing the objection for them. Two, my job as a salesperson is to help the customer navigate the, we're in a bad place today. I want to get to a better place in the future. And part of navigating that process is there's going to be hesitations and objections for their entire organization. I sell to law firms. And one of the big things that law firms have concern around is like security. And so I might be working with a particular partner at a law firm and I know that for that person to get the deal done, we're probably going to have to have a meeting with like IT security and go through like a rigorous security process. You better believe like I'm bringing that up. I'm saying, hey, like most law firms I work with, like they have some concerns around the security of our thing and like um, how we manage the IT side of things. Like, do you feel like that's something that your IT director is going to want to have a conversation with us around? The other thing I'm doing there is I'm also proposing a solution to set objection. I know I'm rambling at you a lot here, Jason, but the idea is if I present the objection, if I look for trouble, I can set the board in terms of how the objection is framed. I'm coming across as a super proactive salesperson to help them. And I have the ability to propose the solution like right there. Boom. Objection is handled or really addressed. I don't like the word handled, by the way. So Nick, do you find that when you proactively bring up stuff, sometimes you get a little chuckle or a smile because the prospect's like, yeah, I actually was thinking about that. Um, frequently. I One of my favorite yeah. phrases, like if I can sort of sense hesitation from the other person, um, I love, and this is another Charles Mulbauer one, like if you feel like somebody has a concern around something, I subscribe to the belief, if you sense it, say it. If I can sense hesitation from Colby, if I can get the feeling like, He's not crazy around the analytics dashboards that I'm demoing him right now. I should call that out. I should say, hey, Colby, like I'm kind of getting the sense that you're not crazy about these analytics dashboards I'm showing you right now. Am I totally off with that? And what I'm doing here is like, I sense it. I call it out in a polite way. I'm not like, oh, you must hate the software I'm showing you, Colby. I'm saying, hey, I'm getting the sense you're not crazy about this. One of two things is going to happen there. One, Colby's going to say, hey, you know what, Nick, you're right. I don't like this because it doesn't have X and I need to see X. Well, boom. Now, because he's voiced that objection or concern, I have a way that I can actually address it. And maybe I just, I need to go to the other screen that I wasn't planning on showing him in that demo. And so unless I get him to voice his hesitation, I cannot address it. 
The other outcome might be, he says, no, actually, sorry, I just haven't had enough coffee today. I'm having a rough day. And now you can sort of quell yeah. your fears and be like, okay, like, but if you are the salesperson who just shuts their eyes and is like, everything's great until the customer hits me with an objection, you've lost. You're making them do the work. Your job is to do the work for the customer. Kevin said, Nick has a striking striking resemblance to Gary Vee in the way he communicates. I'm also very, very short. So uh, I've got two things. You also, you also have thicker hair right here. <sighs> and I can make fun of that because I'm a, a bald guy. Um, <laughs> So Nick, I love what you said. Sense it, say it. Colby, you mentioned something. Did you say radical candor? Is that what you brought up earlier? Was that the? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is. <clears throat> so I try and make things really, really simple, right? Like everybody who sits down, um, whatever sales job you've ever had. Ideally, probably you're writing down a bunch of, hey, these are all the objections. These are my talking points. These are my notes. This is what I'm going to remember to do. And you've got like a desk full of sticky notes. But like ultimately, when you get onto the phone, you have to drive a conversation. You have to, you know, think about that next step. You have to intake information. Um, and you also have to kind of see to to Nick's point, what how is that information being being accepted? So to sit there and accept the um you know, I'm going to have a thousand sticky notes on my desk and I'm going to hit all of these. You're just not going to do that. So I try and break it down for my reps and, and anybody that I work with. Um, let's make it super simple. Like let's have super simple frameworks that, that we can rely on. Um, so Nick, to your point, radical candor, right? Um, you guys can find a way that, that it makes it, you know, more palatable to ask, but what you want to do is almost like audit that conversation. Hey, Nick, it feels like you're like kind of distracted right now. Am I, am I, am I getting that right? And if we use terms like it feels like, or it seems like, or it sounds like I can posit something without accusing you of it. Yeah. And it's going to allow me to build trust with you. And if we set that radical candor up up front and I've, I've set that expectation. Um, yeah. And some of you guys, I'm seeing it in the chat. Chris Voss, absolutely. That guy's my, uh, you know, never split the difference is, is our sales Bible here. But we want to to make it super, super easy for people to to voice their concerns, create an environment in which it's okay for them to voice their concerns. And you can actually model that out by labeling something, even if it's not there. That's the trick too. So if we're having that initial conversation and you're feeling like they're not bought in, tell them that. Hey, man, I might be totally overreacting to this and I'm just a really sensitive sales guy, but it kind of seems like you're not paying attention. Is this not what you were looking for? And they might be like, oh yeah, you know what? Like, I'm trying to figure out what I'm ordering for lunch. I've literally had a dude say, I'm trying to figure out what I'm ordering for lunch. And I'll just be like, hey, like... Go, you should totally do that. What are you thinking? And then we have that human moment. He does yeah. that. He moves on. And then we're back. And then we joke about it for the rest of the relationship. Yeah, I love that. I think a big part of this radical candor piece too, if you're watching this and you're thinking, oh God, that sounds a little scary. It requires a little bit of courage if you've never done it before. Mm -hmm. When I was first doing that kind of approach where I'm like, you know what? Screw it, dude. I'm going to be really candid with people on here. And if I'm confused as a salesperson, when they're trying to share with me what they're trying to accomplish, that's actually just as much on the prospect as it is on me. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like, it's okay to 
hey, this could be totally, you know, I could be misreading this, but I, I'm kind of confused. I'm having trouble following exactly mm-hmm. where we're going here. Um, can we take a time out real quick? Like having a really human moment like that. And I think having the courage to do that, your heart will be racing when you do these kind of things. But I would rather have a real conversation with someone and have a deal get disqualified early than to have this surface level talk the entire time and for a conversation to go nowhere and then to get three months into a sales process and a sales cycle and then we don't close the deal because of stuff I could have easily gotten out in the first or second conversation. Jason, Um, when I first started selling, I would lose a lot of sleep. I would wake up in the middle of the night and I'd start thinking about deals in my pipeline. And I would think of reasons like why some deals wouldn't come in or like, ah, I'm worried about this thing with customer X and I'm worried about this thing with customer Y. And like, I'd literally be laying up at night, stressing about these things. And I would hold on to that for so, so long. And finally I was like, this, this kind of stinks. This isn't very fun. And so I just started asking customers about this. Like I would be like, Hey, I woke up in the middle of the night last night and I was thinking like, we haven't had a conversation around like the data analytics dashboard demo that we did a couple weeks ago. Like, did we miss the mark with that? And you wouldn't believe customers like they open up so much more and I sleep so much better at night now. So like what you have to do is take all the um, like the trash and the worry and the concern that's in your head and articulate it to the customer. And that helps you both get to a place of much, much better clarity. You're not this like happy go lucky salesperson who's just going to like storm through it and pretend everything is fine. The other thing you talk about with courage, Jason, is I think most salespeople have this picture in their head of what a great salesperson is and they're confident and good looking and they've got all this bravado and like, I'm none of those things. And so um, actually the best salespeople I think are thoughtful and um, sometimes like cautious or skeptical. And so like, you don't have to be this salesperson who just like storms through and always has the answer. Sometimes you might need to ask the same question twice because you didn't understand it the first time. Duncan, no, it was not um, a dive in feet process. It was like the first time I did it, it felt good, but it, it sort of took me some time. But um, my commitment would be like, if you don't understand something, ask the customer or call that out with the customer and you're not going to come across as an idiot. You're actually going to get way, way better dis- discovery and learnings from them than you would if you like pretended that you understood them right away every single time, which never happens in any human relationship. Yep. yep. And we lost Cole, but he texted me. He's going to come back. His computer <laughs> shut off for some reason. Oh, he didn't um, like what I was one, saying. One big thing too, your guys, your secret weapon is to smile. Bring some levity to the conversation. Anytime I have to ask something really hard, I put a big smile on my face. Nick, um, I'm kind of getting the sense that you're not really seeing the value here and you've looked into XYZ trainer and they're just giving you some stuff that I'm that I haven't presented. Am I way off here or is there something there for us to talk about? Like put a big smile on your face. Anytime you got to do something that's weird or confrontational, I want to be disarming as possible. If you got dimples, I want them to see it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about, so we've kind of talked about the the approach behind this and the mindset behind it. Let's start getting tactical with some of the objections. Could you guys in the chat with me? And again, this is strictly sales process types of objections. What objections do you get most throughout the sales process or what tends to surprise you at the end? So we could talk pricing, we could talk budget, timing. Let me know in the chat. And then we'll pick a couple here to 
focus on what do you get actually the most, Nick? Where do you find that your prospects tend to have the most resistance? Um, so right now I sell a tool for attorneys to, to, it basically tracks all of the work that they do and it builds a outline of their day to help them do their timesheet for billing. And it's a difference, like most attorneys just write down their time on a piece of paper and it's a really, really straightforward process. This is a tool that sort of like tracks their work and assists them. And so I get concerns around like big brother, like, oh, it's spying on on my attorneys. They might push back on that. I have... I have pushback on like, well, that's different than the workflow that I have today. I've actually gotten that many, many times in my sales career is like the way that the job gets done is, is different using the technology than the way that it is today. Um, I think that's what comes up a lot, a lot, a lot. And I can talk to you about how I address those concerns. Um, but I'm looking, we've got a lot of really good ones in, um, in the chat. Like, um, what's up Colby? (laughs) We got Colby back. He's back. <laughs> that was such a classic demo experience, too. Yeah. <laughs> just, just so I was just screen. the audience. I was pulling the audience, Colby, on just kind of what objections they tend to run across the most. I think the first one we should talk about is price, you guys. Price and budget. And let's really unpack this one because that's the one I see a lot. And it's also the one that um, I get asked most hmm. about, too. So pricing. I'll start with you, Colby. With the Zoom Info products and the Chorus AI and all that stuff that you guys are doing, how do you think about pricing and budget? Yeah, good good question. So we are, dude, I did it again. See, the good question thing. Um, we we are a premium provider in this space, right? So we are, we are generally the most expensive, um, which puts us in a position where we sort of always need to, to justify the cost. Um, one of the challenges that I think people get into, especially when they see um, um, that sort of objection, that pricing objection, is uh, they're defending it immediately, right? You're not, your job is not to uh, defend your product or defend your price. Your job is to help them understand the value that's associated with your solution, which will then justify the outlay of capital or expense. So what you've done is by immediately defending is one, you've, you've sort of validated, right? That you're, you are too expensive. And two, you've put this at an adversarial type of conversation when really what we need to do is we um, we need to sort of reposition that conversation. It's not me against you. It's you and your buyer against the problem, right? Yes. So if you can reframe that, then you guys can have a really candid and open conversation. Now, one of the ways that I'd go about getting ahead of that conversation if someone objects to price at the end of the, cost, the the sales cycle, there's two things. One, you guys have done a terrible job running your sales cycle. Two, you haven't actually provided enough value to justify it, right? So price in the absence of value doesn't matter. So what we can do at the very beginning, though, to kind of level set this, I always like to, to source this out. The end of our discovery call, hey, Nick. 
clients like you that are trying to solve this problem generally spend between fifty dollars and $100,000 a year, depending on the level of service. I just want to gut check you. Are we in the same galaxy? I'm not asking you to say yes and sign that check right now. I just want to make sure, right? And it's that radical candor that we go back to. And I've established that social contract with Nick now where I've given him the opportunity to get out if he doesn't want to. And we, once, once he says yes, you know, like, Hey, obviously we need to do some due diligence and all that stuff. But yeah, I I think that's, that's in line. Now we know I'm not going to get blindsided later. So that's kind of a whole, that was a lot of stuff, but, but I would definitely make sure that you guys um, up front, just level set the conversation and two, um, don't defend your price. Don't defend your product. Pause. Hey, it sounds like you guys don't see enough value in the solution. And now let's reset all the reasons why we're talking, all of the things that we've done getting to this point. And now how can you and I work together against this problem? Is it too expensive because you don't see value? Or is it you can't sign off on this? Or is it you don't have budget? Let's dig into that. Jason, okay. my, my typical response on the price thing. So let's say Can I hold I up the proposal. Quick, Nick, Go real ahead. quick for that. Um, yeah. Sorry, I sorry to cut you off. I want to just, there's something that Colby does a lot that's ingrained in the Zoom info culture that I just want to highlight before you step in, Nick. Um, folks that I've talked to about at Zoom info, they call it customer voice. Mm-hmm. So like one thing that Colby, you did a lot, Nick, you did this too, is you say, People like you, when they want a solution like this or when they want to fix a problem like this, tend to spend X amount of dollars with us. You're speaking from the point of view of the customer. You aren't just saying it costs this. People like you that want to accomplish this or fix this type of problem or whatever it might be tend to do this. And I just want to stress the importance of that. That is a framework that you can use throughout the entire outbound and selling process that's super important. So Nick, sorry to cut you off, man. No, I just that was a great call out. I love the way that you describe that because now I'm going to steal that. I think that's a really smart way to be articulating it. You're never just saying I'm the salesperson and I'm dictating at you what the, your experience should be. It's like other folks like you have had similar experiences. So I think that's smart. Um, what I was going to say about, okay, let's say I pull up the proposal. I'm on the Zoom call with the customer and I'm going over pricing, right? And I present my proposal. I pull it up. I've got my best t-shirt on maybe even wearing a collared shirt, pricing's delivered, and the customer hits me with, we can't make that work. I'm seeing a lot of stuff in the chat about how people respond to that that objection. And my belief with objections is that you have to seek first to understand before trying to be understood. Seek to really understand that objection before trying to overcome it. Now, I want to go back to that scenario where you had your best shirt on, you prepared the proposal, you shared your screen, the customer's there, and they hit you in the face with, we can't make that work. When you get that tough objection or resistance from the customer, most people's brains like shut off for a second, mine included. And so the way that I I respond to any objection, but in this particular scenario is, One, I have a stock phrase that I use to sort of recalibrate myself. Some people call it the idea of the ledge. It's the idea that I respond with something like, I say, got it. I always, I respond, I say, got it. And what that does is it gives me a second to sort of like re-anchor myself while my brain's freaking out for a second. So I say, got it. 
Then what I do is, we'll use another Chris Vossism here. I mirror what they said. I say, got it. Sounds like you can't make that pricing work. And then what I do is I ask them a question about what they said to help me better understand where it is. And so I might just say something like, got it. Sounds like you can't make that pricing work. Like, was there a particular element that wasn't right for you? And what I'm trying to do here is understand, like, when somebody says we can't make that work, I have no idea what they're actually talking about. Are they talking about the dollar figure? Are they talking about the billing terms? Are they talking about, oh, they saw something in the demo that they liked that wasn't in the proposal offering that I gave them? I cannot overcome their objection in this scenario until I understand what their concern is. I, I closed a sponsorship deal on my podcast once where like they gave me this tough objection and it turned out all we had to do was like delay the billing terms a month and I got the deal done. And I'm like, well, that was easy. So until you try to like beat, like don't try to beat the objection until you really actually understand it. And if the customer has a legitimate concern, which like concern and objection are both the same thing. Concern and objection are both the same thing. Like they want that concern to be explored. They want to feel important. That's usually how I'll handle the pricing objection is first understand before I try to beat it down because there's so many permutations of what that objection could actually be. Yeah. I don't know if you guys feel or pay attention to physical cues that your body gives when you get objections or just throughout a sales call, but I pay a lot of attention. Maybe it's something I learned by going through a lot of therapy <laughs> is that when I get an objection, and uh, hey, this this pricing is just too high, Jason. I immediately feel pressure in my forehead, the same type of pressure I feel when I'm really anxious. You know, so I love that. Got it? That recalibrate. You give yourself a couple seconds to, you know, if you got hit by something or you bumped into something when you're walking, like you would just like there's a stun factor that happens to your body where you're just like, okay, I just hit my head on the side of the door frame. <laughs> you know, let, let me give myself a couple seconds here to recover. I like that you give yourself that space. And both of you talked about what are they objecting to? Because mm -hmm. price, God, that could mean so many different things, right? You guys mentioned payment terms. It could mean uh, the total amount. It could be we looked into a competitor and we feel like we're just getting more bang for our buck. And maybe they even want to spend more money with the competitor. They just feel like they're getting more. It's rarely, let me know what you guys think of this too. I feel like pricing objections are rarely them really not having the budget. Like we don't have the budget. I feel as like a thing you say to someone no different than if I was shopping for something at a mall and I didn't want to really interact with the salesperson. I just didn't want it. I'd be like, oh, I'm just looking. Oh, I'm not interested. Yeah. Or, hey, I got to go talk to my wife. You know, she doesn't allow me to purchase stuff like this without talking to her. It feels like an excuse to say we don't have the budget. What do you guys think? What's your, what's your take on that? I think it depends where in the sales cycle that comes up. Right. If it comes up in that gut check conversation, then that's probably legitimate. Hmm. And you could totally explore that and say, hey, there's there's alternative methods of delivery. There's, you know, um, we can crawl, walk, run, like however you want to do that. Um, Zoom Info has a very strong like land and expand um, culture. So like we just want the logo, right? We still behave like we're a startup. Because we know that once you're in, like we have so much more value we can provide. You don't need to take the whole grand slam or, you know, whatever at the beginning. You can just get on base and we're cool with that. We want to help you figure that out where you're going to get the most bang for your buck. But if that comes in, you know, hey, I don't have budget, then if that's at the end, that's a that's definitely a cop out. Um, 
most of the time for most organizations, um, unless you're dealing with, you know, really, really small organizations, budgets are made up, right? Like they are fluid. You can borrow, you can do all kinds of stuff. You can mess with payment terms. Um, but that's telling me when I hear that, that we haven't justified the outlay of capital from an ROI perspective, or we haven't made them feel the pain that they're in. They're talking to us for some reason. Have they felt that pain or are they legitimately wasting their own time? There are very few people out there that knowingly waste their own time. Like we joke about tire kickers and stuff like that. Those are the people that'll take a demo and then you'll never hear from them. They're not the people that are there at the end of the conversation. Um, I love it. Go ahead, Nick. Well, you know, you I've heard you say this a couple of times, Colby. I, I like the idea of like, oftentimes if the customer actually understands the value of what you can do, your like the, the, the price to value ratio is so in their favor, they'd have to be like clueless not to buy your thing. And I think that's true for like pretty much everybody on this webinar. If you like work for a legitimate business, if the customer actually understood all of the value of what you do relative to your price, they'd sign instantly. And a lot of times, like the sales process is the um, communicating of that value through a series of conversations. And so if you get to the end and they're like, like, and you can tell that like they just don't, they don't see the value in the thing relative to the price. Back to what we said in the beginning, you should call that out. And one of the things I heard you say earlier, Colby, was um, the idea of like, oh, I might just be one of those super sensitive salespeople. I'm getting the sense that like you might be a little distracted. Like you're sort of throwing yourself under the bus a little bit where it's like, I'm a sensitive sales guy. Like, did I get something wrong here? I do the same thing here. If I get to the end of the sales process and they're like, hey, like we, we don't like this is this pricing isn't going to work. It's too expensive. And you can tell it's because you haven't shown enough value in the sales process. You should call that out and throw yourself under the bus and basically say, you know totally. what? It sounds like I've done a really crummy job articulating the value of X. Yep. I'm wondering, like, you know, usually when I'm working with folks like you and like, if you can call out like the segment vertical that they're in, like usually when I'm working with insurance defense law firms or intellectual property law firms, X feature is actually one of the biggest things that they're excited about. And I mean, it's sort of clear to me, like I did a really, really poor job, like articulating how that could help you solve Y problem that you yeah. said you had, I guess, would you be totally against like doing a 20 minute demo of that thing? And I can show you exactly how I think it'll solve your problem with, with lead routing, right? Like whatever you want to call it. Like, and what I'm doing here is I'm reorienting around, like, look, I want to win the deal. And I have no ego around, like, I don't need to be the salesperson who nailed it every single time. Like, no. look, sounds like I did a really crappy job with this. Like, could, would you be willing to give me another at bat? Because I really believe this thing can help you. I love that. Love that. I, One uh, last piece I, on pricing, Colby, I wanted to ask you about was ROI because you commented yeah. on the chat about ROI. Can you dig that. into that a little bit? So I think there's sort of two, like ROI is a really nebulous concept and it depends a little bit on what you sell, right? So take this with a grain of salt. Like if you're selling something to a CFO or, um, you know, somebody like that, um, you really need to understand who your buyer types are. 
Um, you should have, you know, larger organizations, they'll probably have this stuff mapped out for you already. But if it hasn't been done, um, sit with your leaders and do that. Think about what they care about, who you're selling to, and how you can kind of position that way. Um, if you're selling to like a finance or CFO person, yeah, dude, ROI needs to be, it's got to be numbers. It's got to be value driven. It's, it, it just is what it is. But take something that's a little bit more nebulous, like call recording conversation intelligence with Chorus. And, you know, I don't want to pitch hard on this. That's not what I'm doing here, but it's, it's, I think it's a good example. We can increase win rates. We can, uh, you know, drive a faster sales cycle. We can increase ACV, all kinds of stuff. But ultimately, a lot of the things and a lot of the value that you get from Chorus is subjective. And it is hard to quantify. What's the value of not having to take notes on an account and guarantee relationship continuity with your customers? Well, it's pretty hard to quantify that. You can back into it a couple of different ways. What you need to do is tie it back to the pain. That's your ROI conversation. In the where there's something that's a little bit more subjective, figure out what's not working now. Why are we talking in the first place? And remind them of that and, to, and hit them over the head with it every time you present pricing, every time you talk about cost or anything. Hey, remember how much that hurts? Here's what we're doing. Here's how we're going to fix it. And make sure that they're comfortable justifying that, especially if you're talking to somebody who's then going to have to go sell that internally. Yeah. Most of the big deals that I have won when I'm interacting with a VP of sales, they've never asked me for an ROI. What do you think the ROI will be of this, Jason? They never have asked me for that a single time. Um, okay, I want to shift gears, you guys, because we're. I want to get through a couple more objections. This is great. I feel like we could do a masterclass just on pricing, <laughs> you know, for an hour. Why change, I think, is another really big one. And a lot of people brought in a lot of stuff there. But essentially, why do something different from what I'm doing right now? I don't know what the stats are. I forget. But most of the deals that we don't win the person doesn't do anything. They don't go with our competitor. They do nothing, you know? So when you think about this, why change piece? And we'll kick this your way, Nick, first. How do you think about and backtrack into that objection of, you know, we're going to think about it. We're not quite sure. I think what we're doing right now is okay. Yeah. We're happy with our current provider. All of the stuff that is not changing at all from status quo. How do you think about that? So I'm of the belief that when somebody articulates something, when they actually say something out loud, it has greater relative importance in, in their mind and in their life. So if I can get the customer to articulate their frustration with the problem that we solve, that has a greater relative importance for them. And so... I think most folks are familiar with like the, 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 uh, quote, like, you know, people buy for emotional reasons and then back it up with logical reasons. And I believe that quote to be true. And so my goal when I'm doing discovery with the customer is I want to understand the emotion behind why they're looking to change in the first place, why we're even talking in the first place, because if I can get them to articulate the emotional frustration that they are dealing with or the emotional pain that they're dealing with and has a greater relative importance in their mind, 
which makes them more likely to want to solve said problem. And I understand that more. I'm not just operating, assuming that I understand the emotional state there. Like I hear a lot of sales advice is like, understand what this means to them personally, not just the business. And like, I don't think you can do that unless you can understand like the emotional side of things. And often the way that I'll elicit that information is, you know, let's say we're on first discovery call, right? I, I, I might say something like, you know, I can't imagine that you woke up this morning and said, you know what, I need to hit that requested demo button for next time tracking software. I guess, could you tell me about the time when you realized that this was actually a problem? What I'm doing here is I'm saying, can you tell me about the time when you realized this first was a problem? And what I'll often get in response here is the person will tell me a story about the moment that they had to stay up until 2 a.m. doing their timesheets and it was brutal and they hated it and they never want to have to sleep under their desk at the office again. Well, that's really, really compelling. Now I can lean on that the rest of my sales process. Like Colby, you talked about earlier, like going back to like the, the, the problem or the pain, like this is all about keeping you from having to sleep under your desk and stay up till 2 a.m. doing your timesheets. And so the idea is, I think a lot, a lot of folks have heard the idea that stories sell and we get taught that as salespeople that, oh, we should be selling in stories. And I think a lot of salespeople take that as, oh, I need to tell more stories about my thing and my customers and how we help customers. Like, and that's true. But the inverse is also true. When the customer tells you a story, that is often the most dis powerful discovery that you could possibly do. So I'll lean on that. Um, I have some other ideas, but I just talked at you guys a lot. So I'm going to shut up for a second. I love that. You've talked about that a lot in your content, Nick. Get the customer to share a story. Customer stories are important, but getting them to share a story, very powerful. I mean, storytelling is just such a big part to... You know, there's actually been a lot of neuroscience and studies behind that people buy based on emotion and justify with logic, yeah. you know? Yeah. So I think we tend to attack objections with logic a lot. The other thing that's, yeah, yeah, I was just going to say, and, and Nick, I, I, I really agree with that. One of the other things too, is there's been a ton of studies and I was actually just looking for it, but I couldn't find one that, that was, you know, easy to reference. Fear is a motivation, right? So if we get to that point of, mm. you know, the objection being, uh, yeah, I'm just not going to do anything, right? We're in the status quo. Um, fear, people are more motivated by the fear of loss mm -hmm. than the ability to gain. So if you can reframe that conversation from like, hey, here's all the things that you're going to get, mm -hmm. right? If they don't respond to that story that Nick just talked about, your back pocket move can be something like, hey, like, here's all the things that's going to happen if you don't do this, right? We have a story, um, you know, at Zoom Info, it's having strong data and the ability to actually, you know, use and access your market. That's table stakes, guys. Like, you, all of your competitors, they're doing exactly this. And if you're not doing that, you're falling behind. Now, that means something probably for something everybody else, but help them think about what doing nothing actually does. I love seeing that in the comments. And a lot of the times, um, you know, you'll talk to your sales manager, your VP, and they're like, oh, that's easy. Just, uh, you know, tell them, you know, what, why, what's going to happen if you don't do it? Well, sometimes they can't like actually extrapolate that, your buyer. Um, because they may not have fully understood the problem that they have in the first place. Yeah. 
So if you can help them understand that, you can show them that you've helped other people or that there's other people doing this. A lot of the times I'll say something like, hey, you know, I totally understand that. Budgets are limited, time's limited, but I've worked with 30,000 other companies at Zoom Info and they've all seen that this is table stakes. And they're all doing this and, and you're going to fall behind. And I want to help you do that. So let me show you how easy it is to do that. Hey, Jason, you said something I thought really insightful. So insightful that I wrote it on this piece of paper. You said that most salespeople will tend to attack objections with logic. And that's an error. And I 100% agree with that. Um, I think when salespeople move from being a complete novice as a seller to like being an intermediate seller, let's call it. And they're like, they've started to get their legs under them. Maybe they've attended a webinar or two like this. And they're like, all right, they've got their objection handling battle card for their, their common objections. Most salespeople, like they get so fixated on, okay, I know how to handle this problem. I know how to answer the question in class. Like I know the solution to this that they jump to attacking the objection with what they know the right answer is. And unfortunately, sales is not as um, black and white as a math problem in high school geometry. Oftentimes, 70% of the battle related to overcoming an objection is making the other person feel heard and understood, and then doing what Colby has done, saying, hey, I've done some understanding of your thing. I hear what you're saying. We've had other folks who have had that concern. I've worked with 30,000 companies. And like, then you can like attack the objection a little bit. But first, you need to make them feel like you actually have heard it and understood it. If you're like, oh, I heard your objection. Let me handle this. You have lost. Because the person's like, well, of course, this salesperson is going to handle my objection or have a rebuttal to my concern. That's their job to sell this thing. But if you can actually be thoughtful and make it, yeah, it does sound like relationship advice, Chris. You should do that. I mean, this is this is personal relations with other human beings. This is the science of communication right here. So yeah, this yep. should work in your personal relationships as well. But if you are seeking to respond instead of seeking to understand, I don't care if you have every word on your objection handling battle card memorized because you're going to lose. You've got to make them understood first. Handle the emotional side of the objection and then work on the logical side. I want to add something to that just from the, the emotional side of it is for those of you who with the radical candor conversation, maybe you're just not that type of seller, right? You're going to find a way that that makes this your own. Like, don't try and do exactly the way that I do or Nick does or anybody else because it's going to, it will feel weird and it will feel inauthentic. But I think one of the big things, and I, I think a common thread here is like, we're people, right? I'm I'm going to go watch the Celtics game. I'm going to go do some stuff outside of work. This is just one part of what I'm doing today. And Nick's going to go do his thing and Jason's going to go do his thing. But if you can remember that your buyer on the other side of the table is also a human that is emotional, that probably has some other stuff going on, and their job is not to buy your product. Their job is to do something else. So if we can help people um, you know, break that down, and then we can get back to, it's, hey, it's you and I against the problem, we build that random, radical candor, the empathy, and the whole conversation is way less tense. 
But if you immediately start defending, then it's an adversarial conversation. And the other thing that I'd just add is like, you don't have to answer or address an objection right away or at all. Like just because they ask the question or they throw that objection up doesn't mean you have to address it. You can address it later. Hey, that's a really good question. Um, let's come back to that. Do that once or twice. You're going to feel like you have so much poor power in the conversation and you can come back to it. One thing I want to, I love that Colby. One thing I want to mention too, is that oftentimes what can be forgotten through the sales process is to not really go in depth with how much work is required for implementation. Mm. I get this objection a lot. Sometimes people are bringing me in for a training. What they don't realize is that for your leaders, I need two hours of your time prior to the training. And only one of those is an hour launch call. The other hour is just you fishing around documents and just giving them to me so I can take a look at it. There's sometimes this perception that it's going to be hours, dozens of hours from them and their team and their resources to get me what I need for a training. And sometimes that's just too much effort for someone to want to put in. So talking about implementation, what that looks like, how you make it easy for them to use your solution is, is another important thing to make sure that you talk about. Well, you just mentioned that if they don't have clarity of the information, if there's uncertainty and you haven't talked about what the implementation work looks like, they imagine the worst case scenario, right? Like most people, when they don't, when, when there's ambiguity around something, there's uncertainty. Uncertainty equals fear, right? Like it's like if you're a caveman or cavewoman and you approach a new cave, you might be scared to go in that cave because you have no idea if there's a saber-toothed tiger in there or if there might be some food. And so most people are inclined to, I don't want to go there because I, I don't know what's in that cave. But when you tell them, hey, this is what implementation actually literally say, you know, most folks that I talk to have concerns or hesitations around what the implementation experience is going to look like. I want to make sure that you know if that's a conversation you'd like to have to understand exactly what your time commitment should look like. I'm happy to set you up with our implementation team and they can usually cover what that looks like in about 23 minutes. And so the idea here is, again, I'm looking for trouble. I have that concern. It wakes me up in the middle of the night. Oh, shoot. Is the, is the intensive implementation experience going to scare them away? Because it might be an intensive implementation experience. Well, that's going to come up at some point or another. So you might as well be proactive about bringing it up and, again, suggest the solution. But, yeah, Jason, what you're saying there is if they don't know how much time it is, of course they're going to have concern. And then if they don't voice that concern, you're screwed. You can't handle an objection that isn't voiced. Well, it could be something silly, like if someone's bringing in a chorus or a Zoom info, maybe they think, oh, we're going to have to completely revamp our Salesforce instance, yep. and it's going to be all this work. And you're just like, no, actually, it's really easy to use to, yep. to start using those solutions. It's like very little work. Um, I want to spend some time talking about, we got a chance to dig into maybe one more topic here, um, competitors. And competitor is not really an objection, you know, because I think it's like you got to really peel that back. But how do you think about, I'll throw it your way, Colby, because you guys deal with this a lot. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, think about I'll use the, how do you bring them up, if at all? How do you, you kind of think about that? I love when a competitor comes up. Like, I absolutely love it because it tells me that they are at least vaguely aware of the space. They've done a little bit of research and they're probably actually interested if they're looking at more than one thing. 
So that's a great deal qualification thing. Um, what I would would sort of preach that there's sort of three um, three things that I would focus on. Don't ever, 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 and most of you guys probably know this already. Don't badmouth your competition. I don't care if they're like the devil incarnate. Just don't do it because you will lose all credibility from your uh, your buyer. Uh, don't let them bait you into it. Don't answer the question of, you know, why are you better than them or any of that. Uh, number two, we do want to explain how we are a better fit based on what you guys have shown me. I want to help you guys understand how um, we believe the way that we approach problem X is the best way to approach it because of ABC. And the last part of it is do absolutely plant the seed of doubt. A lot of you guys will have uh, competition that comes up in every sandbox, right? So, hey, um, let's, let's, for example, gong and chorus, right? It's Coke and Pepsi in the marketplace. It's weird if gong doesn't come up in our sales cycle. Like it is weird. So act like that, right? Someone says, hey, Jason, you know, we're looking at Gong too. Why are you guys better? Oh yeah, yeah, of course you are. You should totally be looking at Gong. They're a great company, really good at what they do. Here's all the reasons why I think we're a good fit for you. And by the way, they're going to say X, Y, and Z about us. And I'll usually throw a joke in, right? Like, hey, if you ask them, they're going to say uh, that we'll take your firstborn child and like we're assholes, all right? But <laughs> here's the reality of it. But in doing that, one, I've built a little bit of trust, but two. I've subtly taken away the things that I know that they're going to say. So then when they go talk to that customer or that competitor, they're going to be like, oh yeah, Colby did say they were going to say that. They did say they were going to say this. And here's why that doesn't matter or doesn't matter as much as it should. Love it. Nick? Agree on the never bad mouth the competitor side of things. That just makes you look... Um not credible as a salesperson. And um, someone put it in the chat. It might've been Chris, I think talking about your job is to be trusted. And like the second you start slinging mud, you're like kind of a sleazy salesperson. You don't want to, you don't want to tread in those waters. Um, what I will typically do is I'll lean on complimenting my competitors. And what I'll try to do is I'll compliment them in things that the customer doesn't care about. And so um Somebody says, hey, we're looking at competitor X. And I'll say, you know what? They are actually, you know, they come up occasionally in our sales process. Um, you know, normally they're better fits for law firms that are focused on um, personal injury cases. And they, you know, the, the, they're great fits for law firms that are focused on personal injury cases and um, don't plan on opening new offices in the next couple of years because I think they have some concerns with like, I don't know, cloud access. Basically, what I'm trying to do is say, hey, that was a horrible example, by the way. I deeply apologize, everybody. Um, <laughs> what I'll try to do is be like, hey, they're a good company. They're a really, really great fit if A, B, and C are the things that you care about most. And if I've done my discovery, A, B, and C should not be the things that they care about most. I want to point them and say, competitors, great at the things that you don't care about. We're usually a better fit for folks who are looking for X, Y, and Z. And X, Y, and Z are the things that they do care about. And so I'm sort of setting the board where I'm like, hey, if you're looking for something that's not us, like 
they're 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 really really good. The other thing that I'll try to do is if I am going to like plant landmines for the competition, um, what I don't want to do is like get into this like feature or function like oh you know they don't have X thing or they don't have Y thing because like I don't know the products can change and like if you say oh they don't have this thing and it turns out they do, you've lost all your credibility. They might've developed that feature recently. Like you just don't know. And then you're getting into a feature function argument, which doesn't actually win the deal. And so if I am going to try to plant a landmine for a competitor, it's going to be on the model through which they sell the company. I want to be selling like, we're an electric bicycle and they're a gas powered car. And you said you want to be able to run quick errands around the town and not have to worry about finding parking. And I want to talk about like the model of like with a bike, I don't have to worry about parking as opposed to saying, Oh, well, did you know that our battery charge is much faster than their car? Like, again, I want to, I want to go model versus model business model versus business model, not necessarily um, features and functions. I love that. One quick thing I would add, I love what you guys are sharing is you could ask the prospect too. Um, hey, do you mind if I share a few questions that might be really helpful to ask them based on the things that you're looking to accomplish and the problems you're trying to fix? And then if we're using your analogy, Nick, um, I would really dig into, um, you know, if you're trying to get somewhere quick and you need to find parking and a car won't fit in that spot, ask them how they might help you with that. Mm. You know, and you're going to give them three, four, five questions, you know, that are going to have a favorable response for you. I love that attack the model. The features benefits thing, you do not, you, you become commoditized and that's how in negotiations you really suffer when it's down to features yeah. and benefits too. You just don't want to do that. Um, we got a couple more minutes left here, you guys. Is there anything else that we missed talking about just around objection handling in general or is there a takeaway? I'll start with you, Colby. Is there a takeaway you want to leave everyone with before we take off? Yeah, absolutely. I'm seeing a lot of like, hey, talk about cold calling, objections, that kind of stuff. Like that's that's not really where we are in this. In this, there's tons of other, um, you know, how to do a good cold call, right? That stuff's yeah, out I there. That yeah. um, I, I would, I would, <laughs> I would urge you to to, to check out Jason's uh, material there just to address that for you guys. But um, I think there's there's sort of a few takeaways just from my school of thought, right? The, the, the Colby Martino school of objection handling. It's, um, I didn't come up with this. I stole it from someone and I'd give them credit if I could remember where I stole it, but your job starts at the first now as a salesperson, right? If everybody says yes to everything, then I can, I don't need a sales force. I put that up on my website and say, put your credit card in and we're good, right? Your job starts at the first no. And you need to essentially, you want to show gratitude for that. You want to express empathy for the problem, investigate and confirm your understanding of the objection, get to the why behind that. And ultimately provide alternative methods of delivery or uh, ways that you and the client can work together against that problem. And if you can use that framework in a way that's comfortable for you and practice it, you're going to be much better suited to overcoming those objections. 
But Nick, we got like a minute and a half left. What's your kind of takeaway to share with everyone? What do you want to leave the folks with? You can use this even on your cold call objections. It's okay to pause and be quiet for a second. I think a lot of salespeople want to instantly respond. Hear an objection. Okay, well, yeah, got it. Uh, sounds like you don't have budget. Asking, like, it's okay to just shut up for a second. One of the things I've been doing is I've been trying to bring, like, water and tea on my calls recently. And what, I'm, what, I, what I do is, like, I very intentionally, oh, look, now everyone's got their, their drink. There's so, nothing like, in here. Ooh, interesting question. Just, just pausing for a second and saying nothing can be a great way to get their attention back on you. And it gives you a second to recalibrate your brain. So don't feel like you have to instantly respond to questions or concerns or objections. It's okay to pause for a second. Dude, I love it. You guys, Nick and Colby, thank you so much. We dropped Nick's and Colby's LinkedIn's in there, mine as well, our podcast. Make sure to check that out. I want to thank everyone here for showing up and I want to thank Zoom Info also for, for sponsoring this. So go check out Zoom Info. If you're a sales leader or a rep, you need some more data. You know, it's kind of best in class what most folks are using these days to get your email addresses and your phone numbers and all that good stuff. So I uh, appreciate everyone. This was super fun. We got to take off. We'll see you. Have a good rest of your week. Thank everyone. you guys so much. Appreciate you.